0: All right, everyone. Thank you so much for being here right now, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am going to be meeting with Dr. Heather Martarella, and Dr. Heather is a pain chronic pain psychologist and she started working with patients back in 2006 while completing a postdoctorate fellowship at Kaiser she has some pretty um, well impressive credentials to say the least with her doctoral degrees in clinical psychology and she also has a multicultural competency emphasis from John F Kennedy University and she's uh, worked in definite so many um, programs. Um, in neuropsychology and health psychology. And she completed her postdoc at the University of San Francisco and Kaiser, as I mentioned before. Currently, um, Dr. Heather is um, wow, she's she's teaching pain neuroscience education and pain psychoeducational skills to classes, providing individuals and groups um, and group sessions at Kaiser. Um, and she also has her um, own practice where she does consultations in individual treatment about pain and sleep solutions. So Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Just before we get into all of the questions, I would love to know a little bit more about you and how you got into this area of pain psychology.
1: Got it, okay, thank you. So it was after my doctoral program, uh, actually in the doctoral program, I started learning about pain psychology. One of my neuropsychology professors had chronic pain. And so um, I requested after a health psychology class for an advanced Um, health psychology class and he ended up teaching that one for a select group of us that had requested it and so I started learning about it then Um, but after that I was in my second postdoc so I did my first one at USF and then its second year uh, postdoctoral fellowship was at Kaiser and I started getting patients with chronic pain and working with them and I thought I was you know doing all right a lot of behavioral activation cognitive behavioral therapy work Um, and then just kind of was doing that as part of the work that I was doing And it wasn't until I actually had an injury accident in 2012 on an adventure travel trip to Costa Rica that I really learned what chronic pain felt like um, over time. So over the next little over two years or about two years, um, I was experiencing a lot of that myself and seeing how a whole world changes, right? Your whole life can change in so many ways. Not maybe every aspect, but many, Um, and, and all can, but many do and uh, changed my whole career, and left the university uh, setting that I was in and decided to work full-time with people with chronic physical pain and started working at a pain management department, or actually a full, full clinic. It was a functional restoration program and workers' comp. And during that time, when I was working with people with chronic pain and from my own personal experiences of it, I realized how connected insomnia and pain were uh, persistent pain in particular right not necessarily just acute pain but that there's this bi-directional relationship between them the two of them and that sleep has an even bigger impact on pain than pain does on sleep and mm-hmm. that if we were only treating pain we were missing a big part of the puzzle so i started getting more information um, more training in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which i'd had but i needed an update and to learn more um, and specifically working with this particular population so um, I found it really beneficial for myself and for a lot of my patients. And so now it's something that I just bring them together. So unless someone is not experiencing insomnia related to their pain, um, then I won't do it, of course. But if it's relevant, which for most people with chronic pain it is, then that's part of the treatment plan. Well, it's really
0: interesting how you mentioned that one actually influences the other uh, in, instead of vice versa. Um, so, In today's episode, I really wanted to tackle um, a lot about sleep. So maybe you could share a little bit more about what sleep hygiene is because sleep hygiene has become a very popular topic in the past few years. And since this is your specialty, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about sleep hygiene?
1: Sure, so sleep hygiene, it really includes both having a healthy bedroom environment that's gonna facilitate good quality sleep and daily routines that promote consistent uninterrupted sleep as well. So it's a set of tips or tools that people can use. Maybe not tools, but tips and um, behaviors that people engage in that are healthy and lead towards healthy sleep. So there's a number of them.
0: A number of them, and um, maybe you could tell us a little bit what it means to have good sleep hygiene. Like what are some factors to having good sleep hygiene, for example?
1: Sure, sure. So keeping a consistent sleep schedule is probably one of the most important, really having a set wake time that you wake at the same time every day is key. Having dim lighting in the half hour, at least before bedtime is quite important. Uh, and, Creating and maintaining a relaxing and consistent bedtime wind down routine. So you're moving from a more active mind and body to a more relaxed mind and body before getting into bed or whatever it is that you sleep upon, right? Some people don't sleep in bed, so I often will use these terms interchangeably with uh, recliners or couch or wherever else people may be sleeping. But having a bedtime wind down routine and sleeping in the same place on a regular basis um, is gonna be key because our brain makes these associations And then um, limiting food before bedtime, limiting water, ideally food is not going to be, you're not going to be consuming food for at least two, three hours before bed, if at all possible. And you're not going to be exercising extensively for several hours before bed, Uh, maybe some gentle stretching or yoga or Tai Chi, something soothing, gentle, mindful meditation or mindful movement practices um limiting water so you're not getting up many times throughout the night for bathroom breaks Mm -hmm. things of that nature
0: and so i i wanted to make a little bit of an association here with pain also and and sleep um could you tell us maybe a little bit what the process is like of taking someone who does have the fact that maybe they have insomnia and they do have pain how how does good sleep hygiene affect them and and what have you seen um Especially in time frames, how, how this all goes together and how they can improve.
1: Got it. Okay. So we'd need to go back a bit further um, about what circadian rhythms are first and how to reset them as part of the conversation. But mm-hmm. when people have both pain and sleep, we need to recognize which is having the greater impact in their particular situation. Okay. So we'd help them assess for that. Uh, We need to know if they are getting, if they think they're getting good quality sleep, then that's not gonna be such a concern. But if they are not, then there are a variety of factors that I'm gonna be assessing for. There's different types of insomnia that are most common with people who have chronic pain. So I need to know if they're experiencing, um, before I even assess for that, I need to know if they're feeling rested and restored when they wake. If they're experiencing daytime sleepiness, if they're feeling satisfied with the quality and quantity of the sleep that they're having.
0: Okay. Um, So what do you think, or maybe you could share with our listeners, what some of the factors or criteria to assess good sleep quality are? Like, what would we as bad sleepers be looking for to assess our own sleep quality?
1: Right. So this is really what your own experience is. Are you satisfied with the quality of your sleep? Are you experiencing daytime sleepiness? Or do you wake feeling rested and restored or not? If if not, if you're finding that you're falling asleep while driving or you're falling asleep at work, you're having difficulty keeping your eyes open, helping your kids with their homework or anything like that, that's a concern. If you wake in the morning feeling irritable, unrested, fatigued, that's a concern, right? If it takes you too long to fall asleep and too long is going to differ for different people. Hmm. So I need to find out what feels too long for individuals, but there are criteria that are used to determine if someone has, let's say something called initial uh, insomnia or sleep onset insomnia. So difficulty falling asleep. So I will ask patients or um, clients, depending on the location that I'm in, if they are having difficulty falling asleep two or more times in a seven day period. So in the last seven days, have you had two or more nights where it took you longer than 30 minutes to fall asleep? Not from the time you got into bed or your recliner or your couch, wherever you're sleeping, but, from the time that you want to close your eyes and fall asleep. All right, and then the another one would be sleep maintenance insomnia. And I'm checking there's different criteria for that one to see if they're having difficulty with the uh, falling asleep after getting up during the night or just waking during the night, even if they don't get out of bed. Um, if they're having early morning waking and they're not able to return to sleep and that's their sleep is just shortened. Um, and also hypersomnia, so an excessive amount of sleep. Uh, they're all. They're associated with different things. So I need to do that assessment to find out what the best treatment plan is going to be for them. So Heather, we were wondering if you could explain to our listeners, what are the different stages of sleep? Sure. So there's REM sleep and non-REM sleep. So we'll start off with non-REM sleep. So non-REM is going to be stage one. It's a very, very light sleep. We often don't even recognize that we are asleep. So someone may, we may be watching a TV show or reading a book and then realize we don't realize what we just finished reading, right? We're not taking that information in or watching a show and realize that it's the end of the show and we don't remember what happened because we kind of faded out for some of that show, right? Um, and then stage two sleep is going to comprise about 40 to 50% uh, approximately of the time that we're asleep. And this is still light sleep, but deeper than stage one sleep is. So for this, you're going to know you're asleep. If you wake up, you recognize, oh, i just fell asleep, right? Um, and then stage three sleep stage is deep sleep, slow brainwave, deep sleep. This is where we experience cellular restoration or our body is healing itself. Um, we experience a human growth hormone, which is our body's great healer. And uh, this is the most difficult stage in which we can wake somebody up. And then we have REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep. And this is where dreaming occurs. So people usually know about REM as dream state. and I think of REM as uh, emotional first aid. If we're not getting sufficient REM sleep, then we're not regulating our moods very well. We're having more like roller coaster of emotions. Um, And so it's our body's natural ability to recover and heal itself by regulating our nervous system, getting us into that relaxation response, that parasympathetic relaxation response that we need. So when REM is damaged, if we're not having REM sleep, then it's impaired, then we're not going to be able to get into that relaxation response state. We're not going to have more heart rate variability um, within our, that's redundant. We're not going to have more heart rate variability, we're going, to, we're going to have lower scores with that, because we're going to be stuck more in that sympathetic arousal state if we're not getting ample or sufficient, I should say, stage three and REM sleep.
0: Okay, so um, within those stages of sleep, the non-REM and
1: REM, which parts are impacted for people with chronic pain? For people with persistent pain, deep sleep and REM are the stages that are most often impaired. And with sufficient, insufficient deep sleep, we have more skin sensitivity. We have an increased experience of pain. It becomes heightened. And when we have insufficient REM sleep, our moods are more dysregulated. So we're gonna have more anxiety, more danger signals being sent from the brain, uh, increasing our pain.
0: Right. Um, Maybe you could explain for our listeners a little bit about the parasympathetic nervous system and just explain what that is, because it's a big word that isn't often explained.
1: Sure, got it. So we have our, our central nervous system is comprised of our brain and our spinal cord and the nerves that run through our spinal cord actually and go throughout our body. And the central nervous system is going to break down into the autonomic nervous system. So the automatic responses our body is going to have. And it has two branches within it. The sympathetic nervous system that people often know about as a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn side of things. And then we have the relaxation response, which is the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. For a lot of people, I think this is a lot easier to see in a diagram, so I usually have just a diagram will show someone and or draw it out even, um, but if you're thinking about it, we have the autonomic nervous system, has two branches, sympathetic fight, flight, freeze response, a lion comes roaring into the room that you're in, and you're going to behave in one of these ways, right? There's also the fawn for people who've had like extensive trauma histories, um, you may find the fawn pops up more often than the fight, flight, or freeze, so there's that. And with chronic pain, we tend to spend the vast majority of our time in the fight, flight, freeze response, this hypersensitized, right, which is not going to lead to great health outcomes Um, and then uh, and probably not good sleep at that point either. And then we have the parasympathetic, which is the relaxation response, also known sometimes as feed and breed. So we want to spend the majority of our time in that branch.
0: Right. And that would be where people find the rest and digest and relaxation and um, where you're working on the relaxation part of the autonomic nervous system. Um, So thank you so much for clarifying that because those words are often very confusing for people. And I really like, I like the fawn thing that you mentioned. Could you expand a little bit more on the fawn and and trauma related um, aspect of that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So when people have had complex trauma histories instead of maybe doing the um, fight where they're going to fight against that lion or they're going to flee and they're getting out of there. or going to freeze and kind of play dead like a possum. They're going to fawn and they may try to kind of soothe or placate. (laughs) Hmm. It's not such a wonderful example with a lion any longer, but (laughs) that's the idea. (laughs) So it may be, um, it may look like someone is doing well in a relationship that is abusive when in fact they're in fawn mode. And so they're just, it's another form of survival and they may be, right. So it can pop up in what looks like maybe codependency and some other things that people may get treated for, um, unfortunately without potentially recognizing that it's part of that fight, flight, freeze fawn experience that they are in that sympathetic arousal state um, that they're traumatized, yeah. I think that's
0: a wonderful, analogy, especially to the, the word fawn, because I I had never thought of it like that before. So thank you so much for expanding on that. I think sure. a lot of people don't understand that, especially when we always hear the lion analogy. It's, it's mm. an interesting aspect of it. So there are so many factors, as you mentioned in the beginning, that, um, that interrupt your sleep hygiene. And you also mentioned a little bit about what is sleep hygiene and what factors into having good sleep hygiene. Um, but nowadays, we are often in front of blue lights the whole day, so we have artificial lights. And we're also in front of technology, um, if not 24-7. And um, I was wondering, maybe you could give us your opinion on how tech is affecting our sleep. Um, and just expand a little bit on that
1: got it so rather than my opinion i'll give you the science of it is that uh, the light is a challenge right so the primary sense that's going to regulate our circadian rhythms is the light coming in through the optic nerve and going in, it's going to move around in our brain, basically it's going to the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus. It's this super nerdy little tiny part of the brain that's going to regulate our circadian rhythms and it is activated by light that's entering our eyes. So when we are looking at devices, particularly if they have the blue light spectrum, uh, it doesn't mean it looks like blue to your eyes, but it's bringing that wavelength of light into your eyes that that is gonna be problematic for the production of melatonin and other hormones that our body needs to create for us to have good quality sleep, but primarily the melatonin production. Um, So we don't wanna be utilizing light-emitting devices for the time prior to bed, at least for that 30 minutes. Ideally, I tell my patients closer to 90 minutes that they are gonna limit the light source coming in. If you need to look at your phone, there are, uh, filters that you can put on your phone. There's a company, um, service, I think it's it's a non I believe, but they have the science posted on their website, it's called F-LUX, so F like Frank and then mm. L-U-X, um, and I think it's just flux.com or .org, but you can check that out. And they have filters that can go on um, Apple products, the Mac for lapbook, laptops, um, notepads, tablets, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, I don't know if they have it for Kindles or other readers at this point, but that's something people can check out. Um, So that will provide some filter and people can use a red light bulb or a dark amber one if you can find one of those. That's going to change the color source, uh, what's coming into your optic nerve, your eyes. So that will help with some of the light part of it, but it doesn't help them with the mental stimulation. So even if I'm using one of these filters and I am watching my TV on or TV channels or whatever on my computer or on my phone, or I'm playing a game on my phone, I still have the mental stimulation, right? So in some ways that may be getting my brain off of the focus it may have had on my physical pain or on the arguments I have with a loved one or something stressful that I'm thinking about for the That's coming up in the next couple of days or something I feel like I should have done and didn't do any of those kind of worries that pop up. Sometimes we like having something that's going to distract us right some kind of avoidance tactic, unfortunately. So people may be engaging with games or or checking work uh, emails or things like that on their phones right before bed and we really don't want that mental stimulation or the light source, even if you're using one of the light filters.
0: Wow, what you said just hit me really hard because you, you mentioned avoidance. Um, and, and dealing with well, I, I could be if you if you have a partner, you could be sleeping in the same bed as a partner or mm-hmm. or whatever, just dealing with yourself. So it's it's really interesting how you mentioned not only is it the light source, but it's also the brain stimulation and and the things that we're doing possibly in, in the avoidance area. So that, that's, a, <laughs> that's a very, very good, very good insight.
1: Um, You brought up an important piece right there too, though, about the interpersonal piece that I did not mention. So thank you for that. Because we are also impacting others who may be in the bed with us or in the bedroom with us, right? So they may want the lights out and you've got something going on that might be impacting them negatively as well. So good catch.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's another part that is, um, it's something that I've noticed. <laughs> so ever, ever since I, I got an iPhone some years ago, I, I, I started paying attention to that. And I actually, um, and I don't know about you, but I I didn't realize it so much until the the iPhones or the smartphones got smarter and, and you could actually start watching TV on your phone and, and, and mm-hmm. just doing your life on it, basically. So just a little extension of, of this question. Um, do you also think it's bad to be using your phone right when you wake up in the morning? Does that affect our, our day?
1: Well, it could. I think it's going to depend what you're looking at, right? So if you're going into social media, and we know how that's going to be impacting moods, not for everyone, <laughs> but some people, it can, be, it can cause a lot of depression symptoms, right? Or a lot of comparisons between ourselves and others, or that fear of missing out, and so many other pieces that can be triggered. So probably not the best way to start your day. There are many other ways that I would recommend over that. Uh, But it's less concerning for me about the sleep part of it than it is if you're doing it prior to bed. So I'm okay if you're activating, you know, the light is bright when you first wake up in the morning. Not concerned about that. I prefer that it's natural for you, right, Mm -hmm. rather than um, artificial light that's going to be hitting you. Uh, But from the mental stimulation, then it's more about content rather than about the light source. So it's what type of mental stimulation are you getting and might there be something that's going to feel healthier and help? set your day up in a better way.
0: And now just to ask you our last question here and speak a little bit more about this because we've mentioned it a few times and maybe some of our listeners don't really know what it means, but you mentioned a word that is very important, which is circadian rhythms. And maybe you could explain that for us a little bit better in Laban's terms, what that means.
1: Sure. Yeah. So circadian sounds like a a mouthful, I guess, sometimes, but it you break it down into circa and dien. So we're looking at around circa is around the time, and then day. So we have circa the around day is really what it stands for, and it is our 24-hour biological clock. It is located deep within our brain, and it is basically the pacemaker uh, that regulates our sleep-wake cycles. It regulates our time preferences for eating, our metabolic rate, uh, core body temperature hormonal shifts that occur throughout the day, and it impacts all of our internal organs. So it's gonna be impacting us in many ways.
0: Wow, and it's amazing because it shows us how complex the body is and how it all works together. It's (laughs) pretty amazing. So um, yeah. you also mentioned a little bit about the hormone melatonin. And Mm -hmm. I know that when we come back and meet in our second episode together, that we're going to be talking a lot more about melatonin. Um, But maybe you could just introduce melatonin right now and just say what it is and how it's connected to circadian rhythms.
1: Got it. Okay, so melatonin is created as our body is absorbing sunlight and we're getting vitamin D from sunlight. And then that is converted into melatonin and is what is going to be kind of like the light switch that says, Hey, it's dark, right? So as soon as the sun sets and it starts getting dimly lit, right? Our brain releases the pineal gland actually is going to be releasing um, melatonin. And it's telling us that it is dark, dark, dark. And that means start getting ready because you're going to be going to sleep. Not, not immediately, but that's part of the cue for the wind down, right? Before other hormones end up getting released.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, Just before we go and before we close out part one of our our chat together, maybe you could just give us your top tips for good sleep hygiene before we go.
1: Got it. Top things are gonna be the, um, ideally 90 minutes before bed, start dimming the lights and at least 30 minutes before bed, dim the lights, then have the same bedtime routine every day. So start off with the things that are gonna be most mentally activating or stimulating and physically activating and or stimulating. And then we're going to start winding down into things that are less and less of each of those that become more and more relaxed for our mind and our body. So it may be that you are changing into whatever you're going to sleep in or out of whatever you've been in or you are washing your face brushing your teeth some people are doing the devotionals or um, gratitude journals mm-hmm. or uh, prayers or whatever people might be doing that's kind of winding them down for the day to leave with some positive thoughts as they're going to sleep more pleasant and soothing and safe kind of thinking <clears throat> Um, but also from a physical perspective, you may have done some kind of a, a stretching routine or you may have done um, gentle yoga or tai chi or just the breathing practice or listening to some of the different um, apps that are out there now that have these sleep stories or um, guided meditation practices to help you kind of quiet down your brain and get ready for bed. Those are the biggest things that I would recommend doing. Uh, and make sure you do have that set wake cycle that you're going to be waking at the same time every day. That's key.
0: Wow, so it sounds like really basic things that everyone can apply to their lives. Um, but getting to it is, it's not easy
1: to implement, is it? It's not. And I missed missed it. I think I kind of intentionally left it out. People hate this one. Um, Often people hate this one, but it's one of the big ones. So I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. (laughs) It is using the bed only for sleep, sex and maybe gentle stretching. And ideally that gentle stretching is just done in the morning and not really in the bed before sleeping. So really sleep and sex is what we want the bed for. And I hesitate because so many people hate hearing about that when they want to get in bed and read or watch TV. And it's not necessarily something that you have to get rid of entirely unless you're trying to reset your circadian rhythms. So that's one that involves more of a, an extended conversation with people and really customizing it to people's levels of motivation, their willingness and their lifestyle and how that interacts with their relationship, right? If they're If that's part of the time that they have um, connection with their significant other that they're in bed with, then we have to have a little bit of a different conversation about how this can happen in ways that's going to be healthy and fit with their lifestyle and goals. Wow. so,
0: well, thank you so much for clarifying that in part one of our episode. So some key takeaways from part one of our episode are improving our sleep hygiene so that we can improve our sleep quality. So that could be by reducing having technology before you go to bed, making sure that you have a cooler room, and also making sure that the next day when we wake up, that we can assess our sleep hygiene by actually Um, noticing how tired we are, or even with our mood. Dr. Heather also mentions the importance of going through all of the sleep cycles between REM and non-REM sleep so that we can get a full rested night. Well, I'll see you in episode two, where we talk all about melatonin and what it's like to have pain and be able to sleep. We will be back with episode part two, where we're going to be talking a little bit about melatonin and demystifying melatonin and talking about a word that I had never really heard before called pain somnia. So thank you so much for joining us, Heather. We will see you in part two.